Well, good morning, everybody, and great to be with you this morning again uh, at the podcast of uh, Cross Central Church of our Sunday morning messages. Uh, so we are meeting back at church again, uh, but for those who can't join us, it's great to have you online with us uh, as we continue our journey through the book of Romans. I hope that you've been enjoying the book of Romans, and that has been um, an encouragement and a blessing to you. And we trust that uh, as we continue to work our way through the book of Romans, that, uh, that you would be deeply encouraged. We pray that you would uh, also continue just to, uh, just to enjoy the wonder and the good news that we're going to hear about um, today. And it's amazing, isn't it, that um, over the last uh, three weeks we've been working our way through uh, the, the hard passages of Romans in many ways. And ha- I say hard because it is often quite difficult to hear about how sinful we really are. It is often very difficult to hear about our brokenness, uh, and it's not something we like to speak about very often. But Paul has been making it very clear in the first chapters uh, of the condition of the human heart, the condition of humankind. And so although it's been hard to hear, hopefully it's been convicting to make us realize how desperately we need uh, an intervention, how desperately we need a Savior. So this morning we get to the good news, and it's a wonderful announcement that Paul makes. So if you have your Bibles, don't you want to open to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to be reading from verse 21 down to the end of verse 31. So Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 21 to 31. And so let's read that uh, passage together, I'll pray, and then we'll get straight into the good news, the great announcement The great climax of these three chapters that Paul reaches as he writes. And he says in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or sacrifice of atonement by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of course, the Gentiles also. Since God is the one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law just so far. Well, let us pray together. Father, I thank you. Praise you for your word. Praise you for the great redemption and rescue that we have in Jesus Christ. For this great news, this wonderful reminder this morning of our great and wonderful salvation. And so we ask and pray that you would really encourage us, remind us of this glorious intervention that we might uh, just be rejoicing and walking in your grace and your mercy alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul has really reached his conclusion on sin in verses 10 to 18. 
uh, and um, it's a conclusion about you and I, the state of humankind in relation to, to God. And he spent these, as I said, these three chapters showing his readers that everybody, from the pagan to the good moral person to the religious Jew, uh, as he states in verse 9, are under sin. We are held captive, enslaved, and we are not exempt from the grasp of sin. The first observation is really a summary observation I want to make this morning as we get into our passage. And the first observation from verses 10 to 18 is the depth of our sin. The depth of your sin, the depth of my sin. One of the greatest challenges to the gospel in our world today is that the fact that many people don't consider themselves bad at all. In a world of positive thinking, self-motivation, self-glorification, where we are told how great we are, how wonderful how we are, how unique we are, how special we are, and all those things maybe have an element of truth. It leads to this conclusion we have about ourselves that, God, what right do you have even to consider me a sinner? What right do you have to judge me at all? Because after all, I'm Mr. Wonderful or Mrs. Wonderful. But what does Paul say when he considers the human race? And we saw last week he drives his homies' conclusion by doing what many rabbis would have done in his day, pearl stringing, putting a whole lot of different Old Testament verses together like a pearl necklace, weaving them together to make a con- reach a conclusion. And the conclusion that Paul reached, we saw from uh, verses 10 to 18, is that no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God. We've all turned aside and together we've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our throats are open graves and our tongues are used to deceive. The venom of asps is under, our, under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And see, folk, this morning, if we don't understand the depth of depravity of our human sinfulness, if you don't understand the depth of your sin and sinfulness before God, if you don't not only understand it, but, 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 but realize the truth of it and allow it to cut you to the heart, you'll never really truly embrace the need for a Savior. See, the world will try to convince you that you're okay, not as bad as the mass murder, the rapist, the thief. Your parents will tell you how wonderful you are. And that greatness lies within. But we are wonderfully skilled at self-deception, aren't we? One author writes, he says, Sin may be painted in the brightest of colors. It may be draped in the most marvelous of robes. But sin is always sin. Covering its ugliness does not lessen its power. Satan with an artistic brush may paint sin with a rosy hue until uh, it shall appear full of glory. But it is like the color of the asp. It does not lessen the venom of its sting. What a beautiful quote. And Paul was certainly under no such illusions. There's no one righteous, not even one. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 to 4. We are told that we are dead in our sin and we are by nature objects of wrath. And that's what makes the gospel such good news this morning. Such good news in light of a clear understanding of the bad news. And so the beginning of the true understanding of Jesus and why we need Jesus only happens when we are almost buckling under the weight of the bad news. And hopefully over the last three sermons, you've felt yourself buckling under the weight of the truth about sin, carrying the burden, the weight of your sin and your brokenness. 
David in Psalm 32 himself in verse 3 and 4, listen to what he has to say as he considers his sin. He said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. You see, David just groaning under the weight of his sin. God's hand heavy, heavy against him. His, his strength dried up as someone dehydrating in the heat of summer. See, the depth of your sin this morning uh, before God without Christ. I pray that you would have had a clear grasp of the depth of your sin. And in verse 19 to 20, of course, Paul, once again, secondly, observe, uh, takes us to the role of the law. Reminds us of the role of the law uh, in our sinfulness and in our salvation. So if you are not convinced of your sinfulness this morning, then just pick up God's word. Pick up his law and begin to measure yourself against its requirements. See, the role of the law in conviction is so important. God's law silences everyone Uh, if we object against sin, the truth of sin. And Paul drives us home by stating if God's people, if God's chosen people, Israel, who knew the law, who had the law, who had the covenants, who had the very presence of God, if they were silenced as lawbreakers, then we as Gentiles certainly don't have a leg to stand on. Did you see in verse 19? Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. See, folk, the law holds us accountable before God. It reveals our sinfulness, silences any excuse, and it condemns us all as lawbreakers. Obedience to the law will never, ever justify you. Because the law was never intended, God never gave the law to change the human heart but rather to reveal the state of it. Verse 20, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, God's law paints for us a true picture of His holiness, paints a true picture of His perfection, and then it contrasts it with our sinfulness. Verse 23, For there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory and the wonder of God. Paul says that God's law, his word is the plumb line by which you and I, which every person, Jew and Gentile, are to measure our lives. And when you and I do, it simply reinforces the truth of the depth of our sin. It reinforces the depth and understanding of how broken we are without a Savior. So then what hope is there for the human heart, uh, the human condition? And so how do we move from being lawbreakers under the penalty of sin and death in verse 19 and 20. How do we move from being lawbreakers to being those who uphold the law in verse 31? See the movement from verse 19 to 31? It's the movement from being judged under the law, lawbreakers, to being someone who perfectly fulfills the law. And how does this happen? Well, this is the good news, isn't it? The movement in this passage. Paul declares the gospel. Uh, He declares the good news of how God moves us. God himself moves us from being sinners to saints, from aliens and strangers to becoming children of God. God moves us from being enemies of God to being friends of God, from slaves to sons, from death to life. And how does this happen? Well, it happens through the righteousness of God, a righteousness from God that is revealed. 
And that is uh, the third observation from this little text. The righteousness from God. The righteousness this morning from God has been revealed. Verse 21 to 31. And we see the change in the, the language, don't we, with the little words, but now. But now. See, that little word, but now, indicates an intervention. Something has changed the status quo. The righteousness of God has now been revealed. Notice that. But now, Paul says, but now God has intervened. A righteousness of God has been revealed. And notice it is apart from the law. That little word, apart from the law, that phrase literally means in complete independence of any law. The new system is one into which the idea of law does not even enter. And yet it does not undermine or contradict or oppose the law. So this righteousness that is revealed by God and is apart from the law, while it may be apart from the law, it doesn't undermine or contradict the law. It doesn't stand in opposition to law. In fact, the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, points us towards this intervention. The whole Old Testament law is pointing us to this moment, this but now moment, this intervention. The righteousness of God is the very fulfillment of the law. Did you see that in verse 21? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. See, this revealed righteousness is the end goal of the law and all Old Testament history. God's intervention in no way plays his love against his justice. And Ligon Duncan states it beautifully when he says, In the gospel, God's justice and his righteousness, his grace and his mercy are all displayed side by side, far from contradicting one another. Notice that the righteousness of God is not accessed through obedience to the law. It's not accessed through good deeds. It's not accessed through being a good moral person. No, it is accessed through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. It is accessed by believing in Him alone. Verse 22 and 23, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul makes it very clear that this righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ apart from the law can only be accessed through faith. Through faith, just by believing. And why is this so important? Well, it becomes very clear then that we are not saved through anything that you and I can do. We are not saved by our own obedience. But this righteousness is a gift from God, verse 24 states. It's a gift from God. And what this gift does, it removes all boasting and all trust in human ability. It removes it completely. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting, Paul says? Well, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, not at all. By the law of faith. faith by faith we access this righteousness and that undermines and destroys any pride and any, uh, um, any boasting in my my own abilities, my own works, anything in me. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So we are only justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation cannot be achieved through our own efforts. It is secured for us by God alone. It is secured for us 
by God alone, through His Son, Jesus Christ. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, who was the perfect, obedient human being. And so how does God do this? How, what does this righteousness from God look like? How does He achieve this movement from declaring us or making us uh, a, a, a declared to be righteous? How do, how do we get the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Well, notice verse 24 to 26. Paul uses language, three metaphorical pictures to explain what this intervention by God involves. Three pictures, three word pictures, phrases that he chooses to describe for us what this intervention looks like. And so we see a metaphor from the law courts, from the courts. We see a metaphor from slavery in the marketplace. And we see a metaphor from the sacrificial system. The law courts from slavery in the sacrificial system. All things that the readers would have understood at the time. And so let's jump straight into these three word pictures and hopefully it will give you a beautiful comprehensive picture of what this intervention looks like and why Paul can say we cannot boast in anything but we simply throw ourselves onto Jesus. Well look at the metaphor from the law courts, the words used in verse 24. He says we are justified by his grace as a gift. We are justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. Now, to justify was a legal forensic term, it was a legal term, uh, and it will literally mean it does not mean to make somebody right. So, in other words, it doesn't mean that we are made righteous, but it means we are declared to be righteous. See, when you are justified, you are declared to be righteous. So, we have an imputed righteousness not an inherent righteousness. In other words, God declares as the great king, the great judge, he declares us righteous in Jesus Christ. And that is the imputed justification. So justification means that God's grace, his unmerited, undeserved favor uh, is displayed towards us in Christ. We are sinners and rebels and we are guilty before God, yet we are declared to be just to be righteous before God. And that little word justified literally means just as if I'd never sinned. It's a legal declaration by God, the judge of heaven and earth. And so we need to understand inherently we are still sinners. We are struggling with sin. You will wrestle with sin until the day you die. But if you are in Christ, you have been declared, legally declared by God, the God of heaven and earth. You have been declared righteous. One commentator writes, if an innocent man appears before a judge, then to treat him as innocent is to acquit him because he's innocent. But the point about a man's relationship to God is that he is utterly guilty. We are utterly guilty before God and yet God in his amazing mercy treats him, reckons him, accounts him as if he were innocent. You see that imputed righteousness that he's being spoken of? It's a sign to us, given to us as a gift. Surely God cannot justify us or, or declare us righteous by ignoring our sin or simply overlooking. You see, that's the other question. So, so if we are given this imputed righteousness, does it mean God just sweeps our sin under the carpet? Uh, just like a judge simply letting someone go because he has the authority to do it? What, what happens to the crime? Who pays for the crime because a crime has been committed? 
Well, verse 24 qualifies it, doesn't it? We have been justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through the price that was paid by Jesus Christ. See, your justification, your judgment happened on the cross. Your justification came at a price. It was secured by someone else being declared guilty in your place. And that someone else was Jesus Christ. See, Martin Luther, and I keep on referring to this, always refer to the great exchange that takes place. His righteousness for our sinfulness, our sinfulness for His righteousness. See, He becomes sin for us, the Bible says. He, he takes our punishment. He becomes the judged before God and we become the innocent. We are declared to be innocent because of the price that was paid on the cross. So there's a legal picture, this, this, this idea of being justified, declared righteous, imputed righteousness. But secondly, there's also the, the, the metaphor, the picture from slavery, from the slave market. You see the little word redemption through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption means to buy something back by the paying of a price. To buy something back by the payment of a price or to release someone by the payment of a ransom. To release someone by paying a ransom. And on the slave markets, this is exactly the term that was used, redemption. So you would uh, see a slave who belongs to someone else. He's on sale. His price is being demanded. Uh, you pay the price and the language of redeemed was used. So you would redeem the slave by paying the price and he would then become yours. Can you see the picture? Jesus Christ pays the price demanded by God for sin. And so we now belong to Christ. We are bought back from our sinfulness. We are bought back from our brokenness. And we are set free through the paying of a price. If you go to the one of the shops, the shop here in Paul, you go to game, uh, you will buy, you will buy something, you pay the price for it, and amazingly, on your tool slip, they pay, they stamp the word, uh, they stamp the word redeemed. The price has been paid, it now belongs to you, so the security can't grab you for stealing. You see, sin demands punishment. God cannot, or could never just ignore it. It had to be paid for. See, Romans 3.23 reminded us that the wages of sin was death. Death needed to be, someone had to die. Hebrews 9.22 tells us under the law almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. So our justification, our right standing with God was secured through the death of Jesus Christ. Think on that for a moment. Your freedom your salvation, your relationship with God, your eternity, your eternal destiny was secured by Jesus Christ paying with his life. When he hung on the cross and says it is finished, Jesus was dying for you. He knew exactly who he was dying for. And he knew exactly the price that he was paying. See, we are brought back. We are set free from slavery to sin with a massive price the blood of Jesus Christ Matthew 20 verse 28 the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many what grace what glory we are justified by his grace 
through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And notice the third metaphor is from the sacrificial system. So we see the wording from the, the law courts, from the marketplace, but also from the sacrificial system. Verse 25, Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. So that little word propitiation is the old English word that can be translated by atoning sacrifice. And propitiation or the atonement means to satisfy God's just wrath or anger against our sin. So propitiation uh, is not expiation. The word expiation means just to turn away the wrath of God, just to like deflect it. But that's not the words that Paul uses. See, there's a difference. Propitiation means not only deflecting the anger of God, but fully absorbing, satisfying God's justice, satisfying the justice and the anger of God against sin. So Christ's sacrificial death um, is the means by which God's wrath is turned away from sinners, but also not only deflected, fully satisfied. Uh, one of the young people in, in, uh, a couple of years back as we were talking through this, this concept used the language of Jesus takes the hit for us on our behalf. Yes, Jesus takes the hit. It's like the, the kid who steps in against the bully and takes the punishment for the one who is being picked on. See, Jesus fully satisfies the righteous anger of God that burns against the sin of mankind. He takes the hit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, you notice it in verse 25. It's God who puts his own son forward. Christ, whom God put forward. Uh, he puts forward his perfect son. Who descends from heaven, gives up his, his, his reign and his rule and comes to serve. And he puts forward his son as a sacrifice, the only sacrifice worthy of satisfying his wrath. God provides the means, the way to save us from what we justly deserve. God himself provides the way. Jesus didn't come to the cross kicking and screaming. No, Jesus willingly stepped into time and space. Verse 25 and 26, this act of putting his son forward demonstrates his love for us, doesn't it? What Paul says, his divine forbearance without compromising his justice. So all the sins committed under the, in the old covenant, pre-cross, all the sinfulness, all the, uh, all the brokenness. God didn't move against that sin, but allowed the, the, the blood of cattle and sheep and sacrifices for, for that period of time to satisfy his wrath because he knew the price would be paid in full through the blood of his son. So the sins committed under the old covenant, the sin committed in the present are all paid for, finally paid for by the son by Jesus Christ sacrificed. Verse 25 and 26, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over four former sins. He put a, place, a system in place, a sacrificial system in place that would be provide and would satisfy him until the price was paid in full. And he did this to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. So God is just. But he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And so both Jew and Gentile are now justified, redeemed, atoned for 
by Jesus Christ. So there are not two systems of faith or means to salvation. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a temporary system put in place by God's divine forbearance and provision because God knew at the right time He was going to send His Son whose blood would ultimately pay the, the price demanded for sin. So the perfect law keeper, the righteousness of God, to whom the law and the prophets point and in whom the law and the prophets reach their fulfillment becomes the means for us through faith, becomes the one who makes it possible by an imputed righteousness, by paying the price on the cross, by sacrificing himself, being the perfect sacrifice, we are moved from being lawbreakers to those who uphold the law when we believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Three beautiful pictures just capturing the price that was paid, the, 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 the movement of God. And why would God do this? Well, because He loves you. God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8 says, Christ died for us. See, there's nothing that we've done to deserve it, to earn it, to merit this intervention. God intervenes simply because He loves us. And what an indictment for, for, against God when people raise their fist at heaven and accuse Him of being a, a merciless and unloving. What an indictment against the death of His Son when we accuse God of, of, of being, being a, a, a human being hater. We, we pick, paint this picture of God of being a cruel, bloodthirsty deity. That's what the world sees. But when we read and see these pictures and fully understand them, we realize that God himself has moved towards us sinners. Driven by his love and his purpose and his plan. And he's paid the ultimate price. God provides the sacrifice that will satisfy his anger, uh, declare us righteous and set us on a, a place where we are able to live in fellowship with him. Even though... We are still intrinsically sinful. And so even though you and I wrestle with our sin and our brokenness, because remember, our righteousness is imputed. It's not in, inherent. And only when we die will we get rid of our sinful body. And the promise is that one day we will have new heavenly bodies that are fully righteous as we have been declared righteous. Verse 29 to 30, For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So in other words, we are, there's no one out there can be justified in any other way. We are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Got nothing to do with the law. Got nothing to do with our obedience. It is purely by faith believing in Jesus. And Paul says, is God the Jew? God of the Jews only? Not at all. He's of the Gentiles also. And since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith? and the uncircumcised through faith. See, there is only one system, there is only one way, and that is Jesus Christ. And you see, when we are in Christ, when we are believers in Christ, do we nullify the Old Testament system? Do we draw a line through uh, the history and, and, the, and the covenants? No, we don't. We don't know. The Paul says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Not at all. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You see, you and I, become perfect law keepers when we are declared righteous we love the law we love the ten commandments 
You see, those who are not under the law, under the, the curse of the law, those who are not under the judgments of the law, love the law. So you don't fear the law if you are a law keeper. If you're living and doing, and doing what you're being asked to do, and you don't fear the law. It's the criminal that fears the law. It's the thief that fears the law. It's the, the guilty that run from the police. You see, the, the picture here, folk, is that, that when we are in Christ, the law has been fulfilled. He's paid the price. The sacrifice has been paid. He lived the perfect, obedient life. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way like you and I experienced what we experienced, but yet without sin. The perfect Lamb of God, the perfect, obedient Israelite, the perfect, obedient Son of God, who was perfectly, inherently righteous. Well, he becomes sinfulness. He becomes sin for us so that we can be declared righteous. And in Christ, we are no longer under the curse of the law. In Christ, we are no longer standing condemned. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 8 can say there is now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. See, these three beautiful picture stories, beautiful metaphors are the good news, the answer to the bad news of the first three chapters. We are justified. You are redeemed. And you are atoned for through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> what do you have to do? What is, the, what is the, the response to this beautiful picture? What is the response to this act, this, this grace, this righteousness that's been revealed from God in Jesus? Well, in Acts chapter 2, Peter answers the people when they say, what must we do to inherit eternal life or to, to have eternal life? They, he says, repent and be baptized into Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the call to you and I this morning. That if you are wrestling with your sin, walking with your sin, trying to deal with the brokenness of your sin in your own strength, you are going to struggle and you are going to fail and your sin is going to rule and reign over you. The way to, to be justified, the way to be set free, the way to be forgiven, the way to walk uh, in relationship with God the Father is through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, you don't become perfect. You don't suddenly stop being sinless. Because remember, we haven't imputed. We are declared righteous. And so the Bible, is, the New Testament reminds us that we will struggle for the rest of our lives with sin. But we'll be struggling against our sin. We won't just be embracing it because the conviction of the Spirit, the empowering Spirit in us, the moment we believe, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 tells us, we receive the promised Holy Spirit, the seal, the comforter, the very presence of God in us to enable us to live as witnesses, enable us to walk in this righteousness that we've been declared. We've been declared righteous and the Spirit enables us to walk righteously. But will sin always be knocking at our door? Absolutely. Will sin be tripping us up? Absolutely. And so being saved does not mean perfect. Being saved does not mean that you are suddenly perfect and sinless. No, being saved means that you are a sinner that is declared righteous, struggling with sin. And when we struggle with sin, we confess and we are forgiven. Isn't that 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, uh, 8, 8 to 10? Verse 8 and 10 remind us that if we say we are without sin, we make God out to be a liar. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and forgive us. You are forgiven. Your sins past, present, and, and future are forgiven in Jesus Christ. You are declared righteous. 
And so when we confess our sins, what are we doing? We are simply acknowledging our need for Jesus. We are simply acknowledging that we are sorry for the fact that we've stumbled up again. We have fallen again. We are, we are telling on ourselves to God. And so we are, re- we are maintaining our relationship with God through confession. We're not, when you sin, you don't become unsaved. Not at all. That sin's already been paid for in full. full once for all sin. So you don't become unsaved when you sin. No, you simply, your relationship with God is affected. Our, the way we relate to God is affected. And so we confess our sins not to be saved again and again and again and again. No, we confess our sins to ensure that our relationship that has been once for all established is maintained and is in good standing with God. I remember when I was a young, young boy, I, my dad told me not to hang on the towel racks. And so I was one day doing pull-ups on the towel rack and the towel rack came out of the wall. And I knew I was in trouble immediately. And so I just propped the towel rack back into the wall and hoped that my dad wouldn't notice. But when my dad came home that afternoon, I was so guilty before him. He knew I'd done something wrong. He just didn't know what. Because my body language, my everything said, oh my word, I'm guilty. I've done something wrong that I shouldn't have done. So my dad picked up on that behavior. And of course, when the towel rack came out of the wall, when he used the towel, uh, he knew exactly what I'd done wrong. And I tell you, the good hiding was so, such a relief that I didn't have to wait anymore uh, or try and hide from, uh, from, from my dad any longer. In the same way that Adam and Eve hid from God when they were guilty. They knew where they were guilty. And so what the natural response was to hide from God. And you see, so when we confess our sins, what we are doing is we are telling on ourselves so that we no longer feel guilty and hide from God. We are, we are maintaining our relationship with God, the openness, the love. We are walking in the righteousness that we have been imputed with. And that is why we confess our sins. We don't confess our sins to be saved again and again. No, we are saved. We are redeemed. We are atoned for. We are justified once for all, and we walk by faith. And so, folk, don't allow your wrestle with sin to rob you of the beauty of your salvation. We are all sinners inherently. We all struggle with sin. The only difference, we are now forgiven. The only difference, we now have the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us, working in us, helping us to understand our salvation and move us towards God. But the justification has taken place. The price has been paid in full. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do this morning to make God love you less. He loves you because He loves you and He paid the price for your sin. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, hallelujah, you are set free from sin and death and the judgment of the law. And this is the beautiful gospel that the reformers and Martin Luther amongst them fought to recapture. The gospel that moved people away from works-based faith and back to the grace of God, the intervention of God, the righteousness of God apart from the law. By grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's word alone, to the glory of God alone. What an intervention. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of our salvation this morning. I pray that you would rejoice in that this week. Rejoice in that hope, the hope of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this glorious reminder of the beautiful gospel, this glorious reminder of the intervention, this glorious reminder that we are justified 
that we are atoned for and the price is paid in full. Not by our blood, but by your blood. Undeserving we are. And yet this amazing grace has captured us, rescued us, transformed us and changed our standing before you. Thank you that there is no condemnation for now for those who are in Jesus Christ. And I pray for anybody listening who hasn't made that commitment to follow you, that they would bow the knee, they would simply repent, uh, admit their sinfulness, that they would believe in Jesus and receive him as John 1.12 tells us. And that when we do, we receive the precious promise of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of God, to enable us to walk in obedience and follow and love and to step into the righteous, to become what we have already been declared. Thank you so much for the grace and the mercy. Thank you for this wonderful news, this righteousness from God, in Jesus' name. Well, thank you for joining us, folk. I hope you are blessed, and I hope the freedom of your salvation rings true in your heart and your minds this morning. God bless.